Well, let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're grateful that our hearts are inclined to you, your son. We're grateful that he had much to teach us. We're asking that this morning he would do so again. In your son's name, amen. Um, okay, the little story. How did this happen, this sermon happen? I was in a discussion with somebody the other night. Uh, it was a friend that Tristan had brought over for dinner, and, and uh, the room was jumping, a lot of different conversations going on. And he was commenting on it. He wondered how much it was legitimate to compare our insight, our sense of valuation, to the way God values things. You know, and Was it too much creator-creature divide, or the way we assess things is God assessing, are we little versions of God? So I had me thinking. And of course I was in the tub thinking uh, about this, and the phrase came to my mind, which was it? Will any one of you, Christ speaking here, will any one of you who does this see that? Which one of you who gave a stone to his, asked for a bread would be given a stone by his father? Christ always comparing uh, our human interactions as ways of us being able to spot one of God's reactions in a circumstance we wouldn't normally put with it. So I was looking up, I, as, this morning I was looking up uh, incidences of that, and I came across this one in Luke 17. It's there, verse 7, halfway down. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep? Christ is saying, why don't you think about this situation, this kind of relationship? How would you function in that? Can that teach you anything? So in the back of your mind, I want you to be realizing that that is, it's a legitimate, it's not always true that the way you would do something is the way God would do something. That's part of the problem in the history of the world is that we are not doing it his way. But we should be looking for examples that help us learn uh, to undo the errors of our thought. So let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 17 of the Gospel of St. Luke. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to him by whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Kind of similar to it better to you to cut your arm off if it causes you to sin. If you cause someone else to sin, it would be better if something... You, you all know the panic when you were little in the deep end of the pool, and you went down too low, and then it seemed like 14 miles to the surface, and, and you didn't know if you were ever going to make it. Well, imagine putting a cinder block tied to your neck. Bigger than a cinder block, a millstone is good size. Anybody ever had a millstone? I'd say big rock, weighs a lot, drag you to the bottom of the ocean. And we're not really actually asked to measure millstones, we're supposed to feel the effect of millstones. 
the disapproval of God because causing someone to sin, even though the world is full of sin, we can't just go, well, stuff's going to happen. Sure, I caused a little one to sin, but, you know, the world's full of that. There's a bigger woe when we add to the sin that's in the world. He then says in verse 3, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times and says, I'm really kidding, I'm not really... No, you, he's, I repent, you must forgive him. My father always pointed out to us how jaded we'd get around the third time. What do you mean? You, you did it again and you're telling me you're sorry again? And I'm supposed to forgive you? Again? This does not... The, the, so many parts of Jesus Christ... I think this is why they form seminaries. Is they can find out, get professionals working on these sayings so that we don't have to believe what they seem to say. We're supposed to, in the middle of that passage, take heed to yourself. I said a couple of Sundays ago that we as Christians have a task to focus correctly on the world. You know, I hate photographs. Everybody's taking them now. And they show up on Facebook. And I don't know, they're supposed to automatically focus. And some people seem to not care and don't check and post this vague, beige, pasty face. And I always comment, focus is our friend. And focus is what we have to have. And as we're looking at the world, God, Christ, wants us to measure righteousness a certain way. He wants us to feel this bad about stumbling somebody. You ever hear the phrase, don't you think that might stumble somebody? I've heard it a lot. I heard it about my hair. I heard it about smoking. I heard it about drinking. I heard it about whatever else. It seems like that's the only place in the modern church that stumbling occurs is where Christians can leverage you to stop doing something but because they claim it, it leads someone astray, which it might. You have to be conscious of it. So legalism has sort of spoiled this, this element. We, we're, we're having a hard time seeing righteousness um, taking on Christ's concern about causing someone to sin. Not being the temptation. Not being the, the place where they tripped. Really. Not just some schmarmy religious guy who wants to stop you from doing what they don't like doing. But we have to have some view. Christ is teaching us something here. It says it'd be better you, you didn't you don't even want to think about what's going to happen to you if you cause someone else to sin. You're supposed to look at yourself in this. Now, in a modern age where looking at the self, we even have cameras to help us do that, most of it is the blue ribbon for everyone, participation trophy. Everybody gets to look at themselves so that everybody can feel good about themselves. Not only are we equal, we're equally wonderful. But the taking heed to yourself is 
you figuring out what you must focus on as a Christian. How you must view it, what you must view. That your view of sin is, it's death on two legs. I have no part of it. I would never want to have anyone stumble. I would never want to have anyone remain in sin. Somebody has sinned against me. I'm so against sin that my own, um, the insult that their sin against me was. Say someone comes up to you after church because they're just strangely moved and convicted and they just nail you, just slap you, ringing slap, and the pretty girls in the church see it. And you're shamed. They sinned against you. And then they say, man, I'm really sorry. How are you going to forgive them? Only if you believe that forgiveness is more wonderful than your, the insult to you. Or your dignity, or whatever it was. Your American right to slug somebody back. Whatever it is that you think is greater. Forgiveness is greater than that. Sin you have to take on God's focus of the world. Take heed to yourself. This is to make sure, not that you get what you deserve in life, but that you would think and view things as you ought. If your brother sins, forget, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And we come back with, do you have any idea how badly that slap hurt? And how much the pretty girls laughed. You probably all have a moment in your history where somebody shamed you publicly. You may even have a, whatever the sin against you is. Yeah, God can imagine he died for all of those things. He died for the sin of that person hitting you. And he died for the sin of you not forgiving him. He died for all of these things. So I think he has an idea. But we have places to hide. One, we hide our, our lack of, uh, our view of stumbling under an advocacy to not stumble people. That's where we hide all the stumbling concepts in our legalism. So the legalism, you know, always has, owns that word now. It's kind of like if I use the word sovereign, everybody goes, oh, so you're reformed. No, the word sovereign is an actual word, and it means something, and our God is. Uh, but we know that certain words, stumbling, get, get co-opted by the legalists. On the forgiveness side, we just go, no, I'm not forgiving. It was really bad what they did to me. Or, they will notice here, because they're ever accused of being a sea lawyer, if he turns to you seven times in the day and says, I repent. Have you heard this? Well, yeah, but they, you know, you can't forgive somebody unless they ask for forgiveness. Okay, I don't agree with that. But let's just say, let's pretend it's true. The person who thinks that, the person who has an actual doctrine about, I don't have to forgive them unless they ask, can't when they ask. They have protected their lack of forgiveness with the excuse, well, he didn't say he was sorry. But then they say, I was really sorry, man. I know it six times. 
planet on the seventh. I know it's been six times, but I'm really sorry, man. And you say to yourself, I don't think he's really sorry. And even if it's just one time, one time, but there's just a look in his eye, a look on his face. He says, I'm sorry, Evan. I slapped you after church. It was an awful sermon. You deserved it, but I'm sorry I slapped you. We can always go, I don't think he means it. But whatever the case, if you believe you have to be asked for forgiveness in order to forgive, if that is a concept you carry around, that's a focus aspect of your life, you're not a person who has already let go of their sins. You have held their sins possessively against you as if you had a right to them, and all of a sudden they say they're sorry and you can't let it go. That's when you begin to realize that you're the sinner in the picture, not them. Now, admittedly, here was it four four verses. Jesus, you know, chucking hand grenades into the disciples, going, "Okay, why don't we uh, dump you in the water? Why don't we forgive way too much?" teaching us something about righteousness, something about sin, something about forgiveness, and how God, how God, when he sees sin, you know my theory about Satan, I think Satan is the kind of person who can't imagine forgiveness. I think he believed in the law of God, and believed in the justice of God, and he accused the people who violated it, and he could not forgive. Jesus can forgive. If you want to be Jesus' followers and not Satan's followers, you not line up with the accuser, you'll line up with the advocate. The person who is on your side to forgive you. But it's a different focus. And even the disciples, the apostles, verse 5, said to the Lord, uh, increase our faith. Handy time to be asking God for faith, isn't it? Some of you might even believe that God is the one who doles out the faith. To whatever degree... That is true, whatever degree you believe that, that might be a place that instead of going, I don't like what they did, uh, I don't think I have to forgive unless they ask me to forgive them. And we're hiding our disobedience somewhere under this, in this difficult statement, this difficult saying. You owe us, God, God you, you need to make me a better Christian. You're going to ask me to be a better Christian, you better make me a better Christian. Increase our faith. And then the Lord gets a little more difficult. And the Lord said, If you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, it doesn't say, if you, could only, if you only get a faith the size of mustard seed, they had just asked him to increase faith. He says, if you had faith the size, an atomic faith, you could say to the sycamine tree, be rooted up and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Okay? So the disciples don't like what he's saying about righteousness and how it's arranged in God's world. They don't want to pick up God's expression of it, that I'm really concerned about sin. I don't want to see temptations happen. I'm a realist that they do, but I don't want to be a part of that world. And I really want to be forgiving because I don't want to be satanic. And I'm not going to fall back on if only God did the magic in me. 
If God would do more magic in me, if he'd save me more. Ever started looking for those sorts of things, some sort of second experience in your Christian life? I've got to go through some kind of deliverance. Well, this is the deliverance. We listen to our Lord and, our, and we are taught by our Lord. He says, if you had faith this big, I mean, really small, guys, you could be moving trees around. You could be moving mountains around. You could do your landscaping very easily. And then he says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, this is that phrase, where he compares it to something that we would recognize. I'm not, I'm not sure we'd recognize this, but come, in, come at once and sit down at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and gird yourself and serve me till I eat and drink and afterward you shall eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Okay, not the image. You got your domestic help, you're all downton abbeying it and don't even barely notice the butler, the maid. I figure that Andrew's got a great last name for being a butler. It's going to be Bates. Oh, Bates. Or whatever. If some of you uh, were the maids, the upstairs maid, chambermaid, chauffeur, whatever it is. None of us have those lives. We're having a hard time relating to this. But these people in front of him didn't. They all knew what a, a, a servant was. They knew what a servant was. Does he thank the servant because what he, he did what was commanded? And some of you are going, well, he should have. It should have been, thank you, Ruggles. Thank you uh, uh, for bringing me my tea. We, we're, not, we're not tracking with this for some reason. Because the Lord says, I want you to think about this. This is how you would deal with your servants. Consequently, so you also, when you have done all that is commanded you, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. In other words, the Lord's response to these guys, we increase our faith, he said, ain't faith, buddies. Shut up and do what you're told. Probably more nicely phrased than shut up and do what you're told. Oh, we like to run and say, you know, I just haven't grown. God has the Holy Spirit, whatever it is, wherever you're putting the magic that will change you. Well, one of the key changes is whether when you step up to the instructions of the Lord, you're looking at this and saying, this is the renewal of my mind. This does not think like Evan thought up to this point. What does Evan have to retrack in his mind so that he is ready for the grace of God? Because the grace of God is going to help you. But are you fighting every step of the way? Are you like the disciples saying, God, you've got to do something for us? And he's saying, no, 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 no. You don't understand command and control. I told you to do something. It's like that. Now in this world, since many of us do not have domestics, and there's a lot of management theory about being uh, 
you know, a servant CEO, a kind of person who's in there working with everybody. They like that undercover boss show where people learn about working with the regular guy, which is fine. I don't have any problem with that at all. But it, it denies us images. Uh, some of you have been in the military. Still works that way there. I don't recall ever being thanked by anybody. They just told me, and I did it. Because if I didn't do it, there was a place on 32nd Street called The Brig. And I would literally be breaking rocks in the hot sun. I think there's a line from a song there somewhere. With a P spray painted on gray pajamas and six inch chains between my ankles and my wrists and very severe looking Marines standing over me. That's what would happen if I didn't do what I was told. You did what you were told. You under, in the military, you understand. That's what they do in boot camp. Is they, they're trying to say, you know, everything you thought about life isn't true. We, you will be lucky to still feel you have a soul at the end of this. Ten weeks in, you're jumping at uh, small noises. Men that don't deserve to be saluted, you're saluting. Merely because of the amount of scrambled eggs on their hat. You say, what in the world is scrambled eggs? That higher ranking officers in the Navy have that, all that gold, you know, olive cluster stuff on there called scrambled eggs. I was outside referring, talking to Jim. This has nothing to do with the sermon. When we were in, both in the Navy at the same time, and, and the CNO of Chief of Naval Operations was Admiral um, Zumwalt. And he put out Z-grams that allowed you to have beards, and we all liked that. But his name was Elmo Zumwalt. And I referred, without Admiral or anything, I was talking to Jim, Andrew was there, and I said, Elmo Zumwalt. Jim nodded, and then I stopped and went, there is, Andrew's probably going, what in the world, what sort of arcane terminology is Elmo Zumwalt? It's a code. That had, like I said, nothing to do with the sermon. Find a place where you can learn what the focus is supposed to be. Stop and look at this passage and say, what's Jesus trying to get across to the disciples? He gave a very hard forgiveness command, a way of thinking about sin. That I forgive, that I don't tempt, and I don't blame God for not growing me fast enough. I do what I'm told. And I understand that I've done what I'm told. I don't expect that I get a payment of thanksgiving from my God. Now, because we don't understand these sorts of hierarchical things where we're, um, we're used to management. My boss at the newspaper years ago would say, Wilson, don't call me sir. We're drawing a team here. Oh, I said, please, sir. You don't know what you're talking about. Your name is on the check. My name is not on the check. 
You could fire me. I can't fire you. This nonsense about being a team. But the whole world wants to drag us away from seeing things that we have in Christ that would improve our walk with the Lord. Because remember in Romans 12 it tells you you're renewed, you're transformed by the renewal of your mind. That you may prove what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. If you want to be proving what the will of God is for you, that you walk through your days seeing the world correctly, you don't take the Lord's teaching on something and go, I don't currently like that one, I'm sure there's an explanation somewhere. You start to submit yourself to what you're seeing. Because the nature of submission is something that we don't quite have many illustrations for. It's very hard, other than the military. When we look at this situation of the master of the house, guy comes in from the field, he's been plowing all day, for heaven's sake. The master just is lolling about in his lazy boy, snapping his fingers and going, feed me. After that, you can eat. And he's saying, boy, this is going on, going in my journal. I'm going to file a complaint with HR. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, because we, 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 we say, you know, you, you've got to do something for me. Management owes uh, labor something. Not in this world. This was way before communism, folks. Now, Jesus was the kind of master who did serve. He encourages that, right? That's an encouragement to masters. It's not talking to masters here, it's talking to us. We're the citizens of Christ's kingdom. We need to think a certain way about commands. We don't, shouldn't be thinking about getting thanksgiving. We wouldn't be that horrified. Remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet? And uh, Peter was, no, don't do that. He would be fine. Oh, thanks. Man, that's a great, that's a great, that's a great uh, cult leader right there. Gets down there and washes everybody's feet. I really get, I get used to this place. He thanks us when we do things. He washes our feet. No one horrified. Peter was horrified at the very thought that Jesus would be on his knees to wash his feet. You need to be horrified. Not just it matches the way you think the world is. For you to focus the way you need to focus. So if you have an expectation of thanks, ask yourself, what it is go- what's going on in your head? What is the expectation? Um, now, this next short, I could have stopped right there. I could, that's where I was thinking of stopping, right there verse 10. We've only done that, which is our duty. Because he goes into another scene, next verse. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Okay, got that? 
they ask for help health-wise. He says, you, if you have leprosy and you get cleansed, you have to show yourself to a priest. He says, go show yourself to the priest. And as they're walking along, in obedience to that command, the leprosy slowly leaves them. As they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And really the point of this is not just to tell you another group of people who got healed and, and he walking and leaping and praising God. Okay, we got that, we got that, people. But there was ten lepers cleansed. One of them turns back and he was a Samaritan to thank Christ. And that's the point. Then said Jesus, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? He said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The faith of the other guys made themselves well. They obeyed Christ to go to the priests and their leprosy was cleansed as they went. The different sort of focus of the Samaritan, different sort of measure of what's going on in his world. A lot of Christians, I think they're really Christians, aren't that impressed with the salvation they received from Christ. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they believed in his death, burial, and resurrection, they called upon him for saved, and they got forgiven, and their lives were cleansed, and on they went, to, you know, giving an unmodicum of a head-nodding assent to whatever their local church was suggesting to them. But praising God in a loud voice, giving him thanks. When you realize what's actually happening, when you realize the world as God makes it or wants it to be, he wants righteousness. When righteousness fails, he wants mercy. He wants you to be merciful. He wants to be merciful. He wants to have thanksgiving flow upward. You don't expect to be thanked for doing what you're told. But you should thank God for being given what you didn't work for, deserve, whatever. This healing, giving him thanks, fell on his face at Jesus' feet. I don't know if it was because he was a Samaritan, had a different outlook. It does make that point that this guy from outside, a foreigner, is doing the thing that ought to be done. Do you realize what ought to be done? You know, you've heard, you know, well, this, going back to that first thing of forgiveness, you know you ought to. You know you must. If you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. It's simple. You may not hold things against other people. Yes, it's sin. Yes, they're guilty. Yes, they're if they're unrepentant, they are going to go to the bad place. God will take vengeance on them. But you, you don't hold it against them. How do I, do I accept it? How much of a struggle is that for you? How much of a struggle is it 
that, that Christ has, seems to have a, a very cavalier view of servants and masters and who owes whom what. And then he has this expectation. I've just done a miracle here, guys. Ten of you. No more leprosy. In an offhand way. I didn't even have to touch you. Off you went. You got cured halfway to the priests. You got cured halfway to the priests. Almost like Christ intended that to be a choice point. What is God giving you in life? And have you responded the way? With the focus that a Christian would have. Talk to some military friends, guys that have served. Find out what it was like doing what you were told. Actually, it was pretty comfortable. My life was decided for me for four years. There was like two weeks I'd get leave and have a hard time figuring out what I was going to do. Nobody yell at me. No one to tell me what to do. Verse 20 says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, the kingdom is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, lo, here it is, or there. And this is kind of the only place this occurs in the scripture, and it's in Luke. All of these circumstances, I think it was the only time they occur in the Gospels, this one passage in Luke. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Yeah, word is actually, my Bible has a footnote, so it actually means within. The kingdom of God is within you. Now, what we're doing, or what, at least what am I am attempting to do uh, in our ministry, is... Build the kingdom. The kingdom of God is within you. That's where it's got to get built. And the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. So that means an awful lot of religious people who are waiting for signs to be observed. Changes that are big enough and broad enough that the kingdom they image will be benefited. You have to be ready to accept that the miracle that is working in you is not loud enough to be seen by everybody. It will not create a revival in town. Generally speaking, a person wonderfully saved will not necessarily create a revival. 20 people wonderfully saved will not create a revival. 100 people will not create a revival. But in the kingdom of God, the revival has happened. They have been revived. The kingdom of God is experiencing the revival, the miracle is happening for you, to you, in you, because that's where it sits. And what you have to remember as not just that it's not like some coexist bumper sticker, the kingdom of God is within you, kind of a zen. No, that's where it resides as a kingdom, not as a club. It's not a job. It's a kingdom. And the king wants you to do things and view things a certain way. You know how it is to be an American? I mean, so much so that some of you are America. You know how it's spelled. 
I like that kind of thing. I like North. I like Idaho because of that. We still remember America. We know what that's like. And then we say the French. Because we know what the French are like. And the Canadians. Don't get me started. What else are there? The Japanese. Watch out for them. You can't trust them. The Germans. As illegitimate as it may be in a lot of circumstances, kind of stereotypes and the like, we know that cultures pick up ways. I talked to the Koreans we had living with us, and they say, our nickname for you is Big Nose. You know, it's like we would say slant eye, and they call Americans big noses, big nose. Because they got that, that little petite little Korean thing, and we got this honking thing. We, we're just used to it. All of our women have this huge nose, and we think it's charming. We know that there are cultures in the nations. We live and breathe a certain way. We inter- interact with each other a certain way. And that way is an informal law of the kingdom. You have a focus, you have a clarity that you need to arrive at that is Christ's law of his kingdom. So that your way of viewing other nationalities, not people of Christ's kingdom, would be constant with Christ. They will not see necessarily the miracle in you when it says, behold, the kingdom of God is within you, you had better, you had better say it. It tells you to, right? I was chatting with some friend of mine a little while ago about some guy who had trained his daughter to not point and look at things and say, look, daddy, look. But to say, behold, daddy, behold. Just to, you know, mess with people. The kid doesn't know any different. Behold. Look at this. Have you looked at this? Shouldn't you have seen that the kingdom of God was within you and consequently the laws of the kingdom applied to you? The king of the kingdom applied to you. And you might find out there is a king in a kingdom. You are not the king. So the thanksgiving is supposed to be going up to the king. The obedience is to the king. What does he say in that one parable? He said, those who did bring those who did not want me to rule over them before me and slay them. One of the other uncomfortable passages. Those who did not want me to rule over them, bring them before me and slay them. So how are you going to come before Christ on this? How are you... Take heed to yourself. Look at the forgiveness... Look at your attitude about sin. Look about your attitude about who gives thanks to whom. Do I need to always be encouraged? Or do I need to learn to do what I'm told by my God? You know what a God is? You have an idea what a God is? I think we see too many Percy Jackson and the whatever movies. This is a little bit more terrifying. This is where he's placed your kingdom in you, and we're just expressing it to each other, and we have a king to serve. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. We'd ask that we would understand what you as Lord means.
that we pick up the culture of your kingdom. That we'd have the focus, the clarity to see what in our thinking has to be renewed. In your son's name we pray. Amen.